I'm Fathery. This is Dave. I'm Matt. This is Brian. And this is Text Track. Engage. Starship Texas for the 69th installment of the Text Trek podcast. And uh, tonight we're talking about Star Trek the Motion Picture, and we are joined by Dave's brother Matt, Hello. who is uh, returning for the first time since Text Trek number five, I believe. That's right. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it took a while to recover from. And he's here for the launch of our, like, our, our movie season. Uh, yes. our, movie, our, our theatrical release movies. Yeah, so he was there when we started talking about uh, Star Trek on TV mm-hmm. with the original series pilot episodes. Yeah. You know, he's You're only here the... for the first of whatever. <laughs> right. So I figure I've got another, I don't know, year or two before the next one. <laughs> but we're, we're, we should say, yeah, this project is our uh, our text trek look at uh, all the motion pictures. Yes. So we'll be uh, starting off with the, the first movie and then... Working our way through all thirteen of them, and uh, we do have uh, Brian with us as well on our on our voyage through uh, Star Trek on the big screen. Fly in the motion picture colors on oh, the shirt. Yeah, somebody yeah. has to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, just to get started with the motion picture, just like a little bit of, of backstory on it. Uh, back in the nineteen seventies, when Star Trek was getting ready to make its big return after going off the air in nineteen sixty nine, you know there was a lot of talk back and forth about are we going to do a movie or are we going to do a TV show? There was a couple of movies in development. There was Star Trek Phase Two, a TV show in development, and then they finally decided to do this movie, and it had an insane budget that just kept growing and growing and growing. They brought on Robert Wise, a uh, very uh, well known filmmaker with an excellent pedigree. Uh, you also had like Gene Roddenberry wanting to have so much creative influence on the movie to get uh, Shatner and Nimoy on board. They both uh, demanded uh, script approval. So I, th- I think a lot of people agree that you kind of had a case of too many cooks in the kitchen. And this this movie was for a long time kind of considered a misfire. But uh, in, in recent years, I've noticed that people do tend to think There's, more fondly of this movie. There is absolutely a, a shift I've seen going on. Uh, as far as uh, the, the general public perception of it, um, I don't know if I don't know if it's backlash or maybe Brian just talked to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love this movie before it was cool. Your enthusi- but... your infectious enthusiasm won over yes. a grateful world. <laughs> yes, I single handedly. No, I think it was the director's cut. Let's be honest. That if there was a big uh, a single event you could point to that might have been cha- responsible for changing people's opinions, and that was two thousand one. Yes. Uh, so I have a quick question. Uh, did, did its budget just, is it just one of those snowballing things or was it like, we think this could be the next Star Wars. We think 
you know, Gene Roddenberry is a great guy for at like wrangling money. Did he talk a good game? How did he get so much money? Oh, there was like a little bit of both, but it, it definitely did just keep. It well, definitely snowballed. Well, one of the key problems with the budget, uh, which was forty something million dollars in the end, which was absurd for seventy eight <laughs> or seventy nine, but um, was that. They tacked on all the money they spent developing that Titans movie and Phase 2 and all of that <laughs> other stuff became part of that final budget uh, when they compared it to how much money... So they... every every project going on kind of culminated... Yeah, and, and they didn't actually start getting a return until they released the motion picture. So when they said, well, did we make money or not, they compared it to all the money they had sunk into that project developing Which, what turned out to be one movie. This was a typical like Hollywood budgeting type thing. Like They, they did do that with like their finances they, they did the same thing with um superman returns the superman movie that came out in 2006 its budget is considered to be really high because he had all the, the the superman movies from the years before then they started up and then never got got off the ground and all that money was like added together is how much did it cost us to make this movie yeah right. and uh and there was also some times where they're like well, we're going to make a movie, but we don't have a script or even know really what it's going to be about, except it'll have Kirk and them on the Enterprise. So the props and the costume people were sitting around building costumes and props because they knew they had an Enterprise. They knew they were going to need a bridge, a transporter room, all of that. So they would just sink endless money into these projects to keep things rolling while they waited for them to pick what sort of script they were going to do. That's wild. Um, And so, like, the buttons on the bridge actually work and they had each of those screens. It's not a, a, a TV monitor behind those screens. They had fil- re- rear screen film projectors set up all around the in, out, other side of the bridge, each with their own reel of film projecting images onto those screens all throughout the bridge. So you say they worked like literally like there'd be a button where you would be like, put it on the view screen and you would click this button and it would like project something on the uh, view screen? Most, I, most of the buttons on the consoles would just do various other lights and patterns right. it would of just lights. Be like, so you would the, know if you hit this, you're going to make this thing over here glow and all yeah that. yeah but they actually had and they had endless trouble with the reels running out in the middle of a take <laughs> and so then they'd have to redo the take because suddenly this this screen oh, just man. went white in the background i'm sure they love that so uh by the time they did star trek 2 they'd switched it all to monitors stuck behind those same right. circles but uh yeah they they put an enormous amount of effort into you know the, the, the 70s details. was also um that was in the era that the blockbuster film, the modern summer blockbuster, emerged through Jaws, Jaws and yeah. Star Wars, Close right. Encounters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that so so there was also I think probably they had to be acutely aware that yeah. uh, you, this could could sometimes these big budget things could really pay off. Yeah, and yeah. that's probably why like they weren't so ambitious. If, like a lot of the special effects yeah. were very expensive. A lot of the stuff was very experimental. They weren't sure what they were doing, and a lot of it like they it didn't turn out the way that they wanted, or it ended up taking more time or more money or they were even some stuff that like they weren't able to complete the special effect they were going for so yeah it definitely it, it kind of turned into like a money pit uh, yeah well another issue was they they in order to secure financing they'd locked in the release date for christmas oh. and it was actually contractually they had to have the movie done so towards the end as things ran behind they were just pouring buckets of money in <laughs> to get overtime so they had like three special effects teams working 24 hours a day in the studio and wow. one of them you know they would go off and get some sleep while the new ones would come in and pick up where the last guys left off so to get all the effects and post-production done by, by that deadline so that jacked the price way up with ridiculous amounts of overtime and stuff wow well i'm just gonna go over the like, the, the story of this movie if you don't remember 
just very briefly going to cover this. All right. Uh, there was once upon a time the crew of the Enterprise encounter a probe that was launched in our time. However, in the future, it merged with an alien life force and uh, came back as a somewhat powerful and malevolent entity. Was able to destroy entire ships and planets at will, and uh, was on a quest to find its creator. Uh, I'm actually talking about the TOS episode Nomad. Yes, I recognize the slight <laughs> variation. The changeling. There. <laughs> I'm sorry, the, the TOS episode, the changeling about Nomad, featuring Nomad. Which, yeah. <laughs> is why the motion picture is often called "Where Nomad Has Gone Before." <laughs> I like that a bit more than the motionless picture. <laughs> that one's not bad, though. There's also that animated episode where they encounter the giant space cloud on course to a Federation colony, and they have to penetrate the space cloud and find inside this li giant living organism that swallows the ship. And then they're flying around inside what they eventually realize is a giant living organism and have to make their way to the brain. And I think there might even be a mind meld involved in resolving the situation. <laughs> Was Spock there? Oh, yeah. There was a mind meld. Yeah, yeah, because Spock also mind melded with Nomad. And, yeah, yeah, yeah Spock mind melded with Nomad. We talked about uh, Spock's mind meld whoredom. Yeah, he's a very, <laughs> very uh, promiscuous mind melder. <laughs> so, uh, as, as was seen on Star Trek Discovery earlier this year, but he. Uh, Mind melded with the Red Angel. <laughs> Clearly, they that 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 STD mind meld disease from Enterprise. They must have cured it, otherwise Spock would have got it. So. <laughs> yeah, it was this was the swing in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's just using like a, a brain condom. So he's. he's I never he see has, him pulling protection. on the gloves. <laughs> yeah, into your mind. But no, I'll, I'll just go over the story of this movie real quick uh, because I, I feel like people will tend to be more familiar with the movies. I think I think we we rewatch those more than the episode. So I'll just give you instead of the warp speed summary we typically do on Text Trek when we talk about an episode. I'll give you the trans warp speed summary. Yes. So things start off with a mean, scary, giant space cloud called V'ger coming to Earth. The Enterprise is undergoing some remodeling in orbit of Earth and is the only ship close enough to intervene. Kirk is now an admiral with a desk job, but he ain't about that life. And he takes over command of the Enterprise to get back in the action. He totally sidelines the would-be new captain, Will Decker. They take off to meet the V'ger Cloud, which has a massive spaceship inside of it. Turns out the whole ship is an Earth probe from 20th century NASA that fell into a black hole and got a massive upgrade somewhere out there. It has returned to meet its creator. Will Decker volunteers to do some weird man-slash-machine fusion with V'ger so that it can evolve and learn from its creator what it couldn't learn on its own. And it becomes a new life form and is no longer a cold logical machine. And that's, that's the end of the movie. Isn't there, so, shouldn't there be a revenge plot somewhere in there? There, there is, there is no revenge. There is uh, really a, no, no there villain. There is a temper tantrum. There is a temper tantrum because yeah. Vidra is a child, and I believe it's uh, Spock who says maybe you should treat it as a child. I who you says were talking that about Kirk's temper tantrum. Oh, <laughs> oh. But no, no, no. Who, who says on the bridge maybe maybe you should treat it as like a child? That Spock. Spock. Does. It is yeah, Spock. Spock. Yeah. And then Will Decker is like, oh, I should ask it out on a date. <laughs> wow. <laughs> If you don't know the well played, very well played. Stephen Stephen Collins, I think, is the name of the actor. Yes, from yeah. also from the TV show uh, Seventh Heaven. Yeah, who yes. um, apparently had a thing for underage girls. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, we just had well, to get that out of the way. So thanks for the under, joke. And <laughs> underage Voyager space probes. 
Yeah. But um, well, here I he was not aware. This is in, in the movie. Educational. I'm sorry if in I ruined movie. the character of Will Decker for you. I'm sure he's, uh, <laughs> he was otherwise one of your favorites. He wasn't. He wasn't really. Uh, yeah, he, he was not an iconic character. I actually, I like. I don't get the Decker hate. I I actually think that the he's a he's a fine character, and I think he works very well in this movie. Yeah. But uh, we'll we'll get into that. We can just kind of like. Are we going to kind of breeze through following the movie's yeah. own course of, and, and we'll kind of comment as we as we go through. Yeah, so it. we'll, we'll kind of like break it down scene by scene. So starting off, we do have. Well, I was going to say we have the the Klingon assault on Viger, but actually we have a big black screen or a star field if you watch the director's cut with the the Jerry Goldsmith overture in there. Right. So <laughs> this is the AKA the Next Generation theme music. Um, and it's pretty, it's super iconic in that sense. Yeah. Um, Matt, do you, do you, did you see this in the theater, by the way? I think so. I really, okay. uh, in fact, yes, I, uh, I did see it in the theater. I was thinking it's the only one, only Trek movie that exists that I don't think I saw in the theater. Although I might have in just kind of hazy 70s memories from I did the see the theater. I vaguely remember, uh, I mean, the overture, um, which was, did you remember it? Which was kind of weird. It, I mean, you hear that and you think... Will there be an intermission? Also, it it felt like a theater, you know, like it a, feels like the like kind of movie, kind of thing. It feels like the kind of movie that could have had an intermission. First of all, crazy thing: the last two movies to have uh, an overture in the opening, last two like major Hollywood theatrical releases, were Star Trek: The Motion Picture and The Black Hole. Both came out in December of '79. Like this came out like December seventh, and Black Hole came out like two weeks later. Didn't uh, Hateful Eight? Eight interesting. Didn't the Hateful Eight have an overture? Uh, it had an intermission, but it didn't have an over. It had like a long opening credit sequence. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, so this was the uh, this was the uh, sunset of the inter- of, of the of the. Uh, this is why it's sunset. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. Uh, I don't know. Any, any other thoughts on well, the music? The the idea of sticking an overture, I think, shows just how we are not Star Wars. We are not going to do the Star Wars. Right? You will not find the Star Wars do you think here. Is it pretentious? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> But I also <laughs> applaud them for the guts to say, we are not Star Wars. Just get used to that right now. We're going to hit you in the face with how not Star Wars we are. It's true. Um, and I really appreciate that uh, more and more as Can I anyone get older. overall doubt that this has like one foot or at least its toes in 2001 uh, thematically? Like kind of like at yes. least in its ambition. Uh, Absolutely. I think that probably came from the Robert Wise side of things because he was not a Star Trek fan at all. He... He admitted that he took this job after he talked to his kids about, like, oh, you know, like, that Star Trek show. Like, they're making a movie of that. Is that any good? Is that something I should do? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Star Trek's cool. Do it, Pops. But uh, I think him being just, like, a, a older filmmaker who, who probably wasn't in, like, the like the hip stuff the kids were watching on, on TV. Probably the last he, time he watched he, sci-fi he, stuff like that was, like, Buck Rogers. Um, or his own movie, uh, The Forbidden Planet. Yeah, yeah, he right. might. Uh, I, I think no, no, he, he didn't probably, do Forbidden or, I'm Day sorry, the, the Day of the Earth stood, stood Still. still. My yeah, bad. Yes. Uh, that's what I was thinking. But I, I think he's probably a, a huge fan of Kubrick's 2001. And he's probably like, oh, this would be my opportunity to experiment with some of those type of toys. The 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 spaceships, the, uh, the, the trippy visual special effects. Right. He's a pretty serious sci-fi dude. I, my favorite from him is, I think, I'm sure the same for both of us. Sure. Andromeda Strain. Andromeda Strain. Yeah. Yes. I've actually never seen that. A a very serious adaptation of Michael Crichton's thriller about an extraterrestrial virus and a research institute uh, where they're doing 
uh, racing against time to figure out what its deal is before prevailing winds like carry it outside of what New Mexico yeah, or something Mexico. and into a populated area. And yeah. very strong emphasis on realism. And I think some of that sensibility carries over to this film where, and I remember when I first saw this, it felt kind of unnecessary to me that there's a lot of emphasis on. Uh, again, you say anti-Star Wars. I, that kind of feel of, look, we're actually in space where people need spacesuits and they will, you know, they'll move around on all axes and ships can be pointing up and moving out of the, you know, uh, the equatorial plane. Do they, uh, they, don't, they still don't do that that much in this. Though. Well, they play around with the cameras with the Klingons a bit. You'll you'll see, definitely, you'll see, they play you'll see around ships that. pointing up, that. you'll see an <laughs> emphasis on um, uh, airlocks. Um, on, <laughs> yeah. on on suits that need uh, you know jets to move around and you see people in... in Star Wars they just have the bay is open in the back and you can see all the stars out there behind the Falcon guys in spacesuits uh, floating upside down because the yep. orientation doesn't matter you know uh, Star Wars said if you uh, if you false if you misplot a course through hyperspace you could end up in a st- uh, what a star or something like that you can yeah. bounce straight off a of supernova right there we go uh, here we don't see that per se but we see a botched sort of warp uh, thing where they hit a wormhole. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. And an interesting uh, transporter ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, one last thing I want to say about, about the, the music and then we'll move on is uh, Jerry Goldsmith was actually the guy Gene Roddenberry wanted for the original series music. Really? And, what was uh, he? He was he, 10 at the time? <laughs> I don't know. He was a older yeah, guy yeah. I think by the time he did he did this movie so he, he would have been working but I think he actually recommended Alexander Courage oh uh, interesting Jerry Goldman is absolutely a great composer one of the great yeah. composers uh, Matt remind me uh, what Poltergeist among other things Poltergeist uh, Omen Planet of the Apes yeah. uh, Alien uh, yeah uh, uh, oh, S- right. Secret of Nim <laughs> yeah, it's a weird right. one, but yeah, yeah. Uh, he has some he has some distinctive uh, techniques and stuff like that. Um, but he is always among the best. Yeah, uh, I would say easily, and when I would say the top ten great film composers. Yeah, well, they, this music is is so uh, iconic. It's it's the Star Trek music that probably most people well, now think of as Star Trek. Uh, sure, through no next longer, generation. No longer the he, he did more movies than anyone else. But also, it's, it's I very think optimistic. It next generation music. I forget that. Oh wait, that started in yeah. in this yeah. in this movie. It, that, don't would you say? I think we could all agree. Sort of unabashedly optimistic and adventurous. Sure. Uh, which, in a weird way, uh, almost contrasts though with the tone of the movie, which is kind of more serious. That's uh, true. When when the theme like really hits, when you have like the long, famously long shot, of the uh, pod docking with the Enterprise. Uh, the music that was originally used in that sequence, uh, Robert Wise hated, and and he said because it didn't have a theme to it, which I think is like a weird thing to say because if you listen to the the scores that Goldsmith uh, has done throughout his career uh, in the movies before this, does he not do leap motifs? He doesn't. He and he he like if you think of like Alien or Planet of the Apes, like there's, there's not a there's this no, is like, the alien theme. Yeah, there's no like recurring theme that he uses, and in in this movie, he really only does it with. Uh, Spock. With Spock and Beejer, and I guess he has like the theme for like an Enterprise flying gloriously. I wonder those if are he, the only themes. I wonder if he was acutely aware of it because of the TV show, where they a had some canned music sometimes that was used, and had a distinct theme song that got was in at least every episode because it for the credits. Uh, I wonder if that was a, a way what he was thinking of. 
But yeah, and he also he also reused the theme for the the captain log entries. Yeah, oh, right, I, the, after I, being yes. forced. Yeah, <laughs> I had forgotten that until uh, yeah until we watched it. Oh yeah, you said he did not. Robert Wise didn't want that. He didn't, uh, oh, Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith didn't yeah. like the old '60s Star Trek theme at all, and but, and had to basically be badgered in by Roddenberry to stick it somewhere. So. Did we all? I, I liked it. Uh, yeah. His reorchestration of it. What about y'all? Yeah, I like having uh, a nice callback. I, I like having a little bit of musical continuity in Star Trek because there's really not that much. Uh, right. Uh, they could have used they, the Gorn theme. <laughs> <laughs> the, what's the Gorn theme? I don't know. That One of those fight themes. A mock time. Let's yeah, say the a mock yeah. time theme. Well, there's, there's not any Gorn in that episode. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but um, but anyways, used to Star Trek movies. fucking so, fight music. <laughs> I like that. They should use that on Discovery when Georgia is fighting someone. But after the overture, we do have the, the Klingon assault on the V'ger cloud. And we get these awesome looking... Katinga class uh, updates. Klingon, Klingon battle cruisers that yeah they're they're extremely faithful to the Matt Jeffries D7 design just with some more detail to make them look better in the the higher resolution of the the, the cinema screen and Matt there's you nobody know, who doesn't love that sequence right I love uh, it. the uh, and and then the 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 Klingon theme uh, which would be, be so iconic that they would reorchestrate it. From that movie onward, as as a, a Klingon recurring, well, theme. O- only in the stuff that Goldsmith does. <clears throat> oh, right, it, but, but uh, the, I think I've heard but, it. Did they not use it sometimes on this show? No, oh, but, but even when they were doing doing other types of Klingon themes, it was clearly influenced by how right. they the Absolutely. music from this, which I feel like it, has it was like, kind of their remake of it. Even if it was a different song, technically the instruments they were chosen definitely called back to I this feel like, scene. Uh, it sort of sounds a little bit like Native American, like tribal war music or something like that, or at least that's what it sounds like uh, stereotypically. To and me. A lot of people have done like covers to it. Like if you go on YouTube, you can you can find like uh, metal covers where it's yeah. pe- people with, with guitars recreating that music. That's kind of cool, actually. It's well, I always dug it, but we get the first time we ever see Klingons with the the, the ridged foreheads, the new look. Um, it doesn't quite look how Klingons will, will come to look in in later shows and movies, but it, it's it's uh, on its there. on its way. I, um, I was not happy when I first when I first saw that because really? that was simply not how Klingons look. Yeah. You're like, where's the blackface? I, I was I, <laughs> I, I I wanted like, where's Michael Ansara? That was yeah. Uh, yeah. And we uh, also get some Klingon language. Right? Yes. That was... Um, uh, Man, did that, that stick around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, elective college courses everywhere should thank that scene. And you, can, you can thank James Duhon for creating those those Klingon sounds. They didn't fully develop the language until Star Trek Three, but James Duhon kind of shaped how the the, the style of the language would... Yeah, those, those like I, short, really? guttural uh, uh, sounds were... Yeah. Why did I he mean, do that? Because he was, uh, he was just had like a good ear for like voices and language and stuff. Wasn't he like an old radio man he, or something? Yeah, like that? yeah. He he did. And he a, did voices on that cartoon too. He did an insanely large what amount of, think, of voices maybe. on the animated series. Yeah, yeah. And he also did like a couple of voices on um, TOS. Uh, for well, other, Matt, you were just saying the uh, Brendan Circuses. Uh, he did the uh, not radio. Cir- oh, not Brendan Circuses, but piece of the action. Uh, Oh, no, you're right. Sorry, piece of the action. Uh, brought to you by Bang Bang, makers of the sweetest little automatic. Shifting a little bit into Scottish Brogue at the very end. <laughs> the, the Klingon uh, commander, we have we have Mark Leonard, who's most famously known for playing uh, Sarek, and also played the Romulan commander. In oh, shit. I actually Legends. forgot while we were watching that it was Mark Leonard. Yeah. I did want to say, only Star Trek fans would listen to a bunch of Klingon gibberish 
and recreate retroactively create a syntax and a language that would match with the subtitles. Yeah. That is just a level of fandom that you are not going to find. I don't think. I challenge you to find a level of of ner- fandom nerd nerd passion that goes beyond that. That has got to be one of the high yeah. high watermarks for the human race I, on nerd passion, think, right there. Agreed. And I'll say this about this movie: like it does, it does take uh, a lot of a lot of hits for being uh, kind of dull and slow, and I think it, it deserves a good bit of that. Uh, however, I, it does start off kind of action packed with with these Klingons. Matt, do you remember that I used to like on the VHS days? I think we had like probably copied this from like Blockbuster or more likely a some local uh, uh, like video store, and I would like watch that opening sequence all the time. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> Uh, it was the, really the only thing I really, really liked about the movie unabashedly, but I really, really liked it. <laughs> well, it's it, uh, uh, when I was rewatching it recently, it struck me that uh, it does remind me a little bit of uh, Wrath of Khan. They both have these, you know, uh, very short, kind of self-contained action scenes uh, that open the film. It, uh, it, they also yeah, both... most Trek films have like a like a, a strong little opening set piece of, of well, some. The, and they some even form. use the same footage in both of them. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's, yeah, good point. But <laughs> uh, both of them begin pretty menacingly. Uh, there's definitely so this is in, in what in classic TOS style would in the cold open would be the hey we just found out there's this dangerous thing coming and it's so dangerous it did this it wiped out this base or this planet or the Doomsday Machine ate this or whatever. Right. That's the, 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 that's very much the serious movie equivalent and you so you see a bunch of klingon hard asses in their th- th- triple battleships just get iced so you know this thing's a bad moment and then we we see uh spock on planet vulcan depending on what version of the movie you're watching you either cut to that or you cut to uh kirk in san francisco but it's it must have been really cool in 79 in the theater to see planet vulcan again which up until then would have only been exposed on um, a mock time, and other than that, was completely unseen. It was just something the that was talked series. about. Well, right. yeah, in the animated series, but right. like, a lot of people didn't watch that. You know, the um, that scene it struck me that you know it has the sort of twin, the two poles of uh, of that that make up the iconic Vulcan world, which is to say, logic and weird old mystic ceremony uh, are both key things in that scene. Um, it's not a super enthralling scene to me. No, and I was. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I remember, again, this was when I saw this back in, so wait, 79, so uh, I would have been, what, 12, I guess? Okay. Um, and uh, being disappointed, uh, first because Spock didn't really look like Spock. Yeah, the like, long hair. The long he, hair. He was a hippie. And his his devotion to total logic did not seem like the Spock that I that I knew and loved, so... I was not happy with that scene. Like, he had always walked in line. Right. It didn't... It didn't Leaning uh, Vulcan, but not... Yeah. Now, I... On, on rewatching it now, I find this much more interesting because uh, his uh, he is he is really the only character whose personal journey uh, uh, is and with, with the uh, with oh. well, like Kirk and, and Decker both have uh, some stuff going on, but there's a kind of independent of the the main storyline with Veger, whereas Spock's well, is Decker's like, coming together with Veger at the end. But that's true. Yeah. That's true. But uh, uh, which is I, I think one of the things that makes this film a bit uh, overall weaker to me than say uh, Wrath of Khan, where uh, all these different storylines are uh, interlinked and tied together. Yeah, like, there, there are like, many arcs in the motion picture. Yeah, and, and Spock's arc is 
one of the one of the few. Yeah. He like senses Viger, right? Yeah. He, yeah. Uh, which is a level of telepathy that they haven't particularly mapped onto him previously, right? They had. Uh, was it we, sort of that when it's convenient to play up? Well, they, I think Spock can only reach out and <laughs> contact something that he can touch, but big, powerful telepathic he, things can reach out to he, him. He felt it when the Intrepid got blown up and yeah. a shitload of Vulcans died. Yeah. And we don't. Yeah, we're never. It's never quite explained. Why, uh, whether this was, you know, V'ger just sort of, um, you know, not deliberately contacting anyone, but just sort of its vast mental presence couldn't help but uh, impinge on Spock and his emotional side made him open to it. The uh, the novelization seems to imply that perhaps V'ger is 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 wondering if there is, is implies that V'ger's like there's something about the the creator's homeworld here but there's also some logic thing that I can almost relate to and is there some right. something that might help me figure things out uh here but it's And not. he's dyslexic. So <laughs> sorry I was thinking of discovery. But, um, <laughs> he's the perfect yeah, and, and there's the several more uh, there's a whole nother Spock meet, mind melds with, or kind of reaches out and lets V'ger come into his head scene while he's on board the Enterprise, too, mm-hmm. that is not in the movie at all in the novelization. The novelization, which, sorry to interrupt, Father, uh, which was written by Rod Berry, at least co-written by yeah. him. Well, yes. it might not have been written by him, but... Right. His yeah. name is on there. <laughs> he he but, clearly reviewed it well enough to be happy to have his name on it. Right. So, But anybody who knows anything about like novelizations and things like that knows that there's, yeah, sometimes uh, the, the, the cover uh, credits are not always 100% accurate. But I have heard people complain about, uh, they never explain like the connection between Viger and Spock. I always, always thought it was just kind of obvious that, you know, they're, they're both these, these telepathic, vast mental entities but you have one who is a cold, logical machine trying to figure out how to be uh, emotional. And you have uh, other one who is, you know, doing the Vulcan colonar uh, ritual and trying to, to purge all the emotion and yeah. become the, the cold, logical machine. So I think it, because they're both on, on kind of opposite journeys and that's why they, they telepathically collided. It yes. makes sense at the, at the very end. I think it's, Viger isn't trying, I don't, isn't trying to become emotional, but doesn't know what it wants to, doesn't know yeah. what it needs. It needs yeah. something, and logic isn't it, whereas Spock is initially thinking, logic is what I need, and he's wrong about it. Yeah. So they, yeah, I think that connection does make sense. And it's one of the things I, I like about this movie, I think works pretty well, but it only comes together at the end, and it's not, there, there's not, no, well, I don't know, I guess you do have a moment uh, in the director's cut, I think, where it, um, uh, it does come together pretty well. Yeah. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but yeah. um, then we do get uh, Kirk on back on the the Enterprise, and we see the refitted Enterprise. Um, oh, before we get like that really cool look of, of Earth of San Francisco, first Starfleet time headquarters. we see Earth, right? Yeah, first time we see in the present, Earth of, in the of the twenty third century. 23rd, yes, and so that's what I love about this movie. Would it could come in with like a bigger budget and you know showcase things like you know Roddenberry's vision of, of future Earth, and then all the the busy uh, shuttles and space stations and stuff in orbit. Um, the, but I think this is where the movie does start to kind of slow down when they, they're on the Enterprise and, you know, it kind of takes them a while to get out of space dock and we spend a lot of time on a weird transporter accident. <laughs> One of the, the freakiest and scariest scenes of all Star Trek, I think. Yeah. It, feels, it feels very out of place and a really an unnecessary way to uh, leave a gap in the, uh, the science officer <laughs> position so that Spock yeah. can conveniently fill it later. I, I... 
I think it sets up that the ship is potentially dangerous. But that Kirk they is do... pushing things and and that things could, you know, that it, it sets up that the ship's not ready and the crew isn't ready. And we've seen these crew and this ship save the day over and over in the TV series, but they always had a ship that worked and this is not that ship. So, first of all, it's kind of lame to make the Enterprise a ship that has hazards. That they, like, Starfleet wasn't able to, like, finish refitting the ship, and so... Just bad the, timing. The, the Maybe ship very kill clear. you. Maybe but, the music during the long pan around should have been really ominous. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like... like we were boarding a death ship. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not like Star Trek V, where they, they just said, oh, the ship malfunctions because reasons. They, they make it very... They explain very clearly why it's not quite working right. They just... They're throwing it together as quickly as they can to get it... And they like the movie trying to meet its Christmas deadline. Yes. No, there were lots of comments and jokes about that within the context of the filming and production. They, they don't really pay that off. We don't really see the ship malfunction again. Uh, no, it do, does with the wormhole. But that was because they, they tried to go into warp while they're still inside of the, the solar system. But it was also no, that's because they haven't the, finished uh, balancing the, the intermix ratios. Right. McCoy, Scotty's very clear. I it's borderline on the simula- yeah. simulator, so, you know. But, so I think that I, like I I also didn't really like those scenes because I think in my first Trek movie, like I you know I might not have known what I wanted, but I'm pretty sure I didn't want to see the crew having uh, like lots of sort of infighting or at least some brushing up against each other roughly, and the sh- and a ship that isn't quite ready like isn't the drama that I wanted. But but Brian, I know as a fan, I'm curious to see. Do you, do you feel like it, it works very well, well for you? I mean the the one thing that the movie has is the, this idea that McCoy, uh, the, the the holy trinity of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy is fractured and broken, right. and they cannot resolve this until they fix that. And I actually think that's the strongest part of the movie. Yeah. is is the the stuff with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and and. And Kirk has to get his mojo back, and Spock has to move to the next level of mojo-ness that he has not, never experienced, and McCoy is there to kind of shepherd them and and slap them into shape (laughs) and and get them where they need to be, because that's always what McCoy does, is, is, is play the wise old man. He snaps at you. And, and, uh, they, they, so yes, everyone starts out broken. They're there, but the pieces are not in place and not functioning like they should, and it's about pulling that crew together and rebuilding that magic. And so Again. The, the ship is the same way. The ship mirrors that. The ship yes. is not all together. And and, uh, and, and also the, the fact that Kirk's pushing the ship faster than it should be, it plays back into Kirk's plot line. So we need to have those mistakes, those malfunctions, to show that Kirk is, in fact, not heroically pushing at the right level. He is pushing too hard because he wants his dream back and he's not thinking about... You know what's interesting? In Next Generation, my understanding was always that Roddenberry uh, wanted to absolutely minimize interpersonal fighting on the crew uh, and have all the threats be sort of exterior threats. Uh, you know, th- those were always the problems. Um, but that's not the case in this, uh, which would be the closest... Well, th- there was there was a few movies prior to Next Generation, but... Uh, d- d- well, not that, that Roddenberry was involved in. Like, this, uh, this is the last thing he had a bunch that's of right, involvement That's true. Until, and, this, until and this absolutely TNG. does have the interpersonal thing. What do you, what do you think and, made and him change up on that? Thank God it does, or else this would be like the, the <laughs> yes. boringest movie ever. Yes. No, <laughs> this know. is what saves the movie, in my opinion, from being the movie everyone else says it is, and what I feel it is, right. is that interpersonal getting the band back together and getting it all tuned in, all their instruments Without that, it would in. be like... Just uh, like a the second of two thousand one, the, the, the changeling with forty two million dollars. So, <laughs> I don't know. That still sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> but it seems to me that um, uh, because I, I I think you have a a good point, and I 
I don't disagree at all. I think I think you're right. Those things, those elements, all work together pretty nicely. And I think the problem that probably Dave and I and, and probably a lot of Star Trek fans at the time had is that uh, that's not what we wanted to see uh, with our main characters uh, and the ship we love. Yeah, I think it, I was it's like, the last was... Jedi syndrome. What did you do to my hero? Right. I was a believer in those characters, and I wanted to see them in their most potent form, I suppose, facing a new threat with a big budget. Um, but uh, there is something to be said for the sort of, for subverting expectations, and uh, do you think that there is was it, a, the is notion... Is really subversive? Because that's such a big theme in, in the original series, was, was like, McCoy and Spock butting heads, and then... And, and, yeah, and but Kirk, Kirk being usually in a, in a they, moral they butt heavy as an oil, well-oiled machine. That was how the, that was a right. balancing system. Kirk usually had the that's, answer yeah, pretty ready to like how to fuse the ideas together into one practical solution. Yeah. Also, in most cases, I, I think that that sort of conflict was usually within one scene, fairly short. And here, it, it's all pretty extended. You you get a long way into the film where you're still wondering, "Good God, when the, when the hell are these guys going to be friends again?" And, I think the the primary conflict on board the ship is between Kirk and Commander or er, Captain Decker. Yeah, right? let's talk about him. Gets kicked down to Commander, <laughs> which I think is kind of silly. Like you can be the XO and still maintain like your captain rank. Which we like, even see later in later but, Star Trek films. Right. Fox and, and yeah. Scotty are captains aboard the Enterprise in Star Trek but, Five and Six. But uh, they wanted to tell a story about like some ego clashing. Yeah, and I, I thought I, th- I actually do think it's kind of a good idea and kind of bold to okay, we're doing like our big return to Star Trek. And we're gonna have. Uh, Kirk not be in the same position where we left him. He's going to be older. He's going to be an admiral, and his main motivation in the movie is, uh, you know, beyond just saving the world, is uh, getting back in the captain's chair. And, like, he wants to become the guy who we saw in the original series because he's, he's transitioned past that, and he wants to revert back to it. But, you know, interestingly, that is also his goal in Star Trek Two. <laughs> it is, yeah. but in Star Trek Two, the difference is, uh, and, and this is why I think Star Trek Two works... Uh, so much better for me in terms of that that central uh, character conflict is that uh, in Star Trek II, Kirk is feeling his age. He feels too old to do what he wants most to do. And he has to go through the whole movie to to get back to that. Uh, you think here, here he feels like he's like trying to be young? <laughs> no, here it's simply that it's like, God damn it, I shouldn't have given up the ship. I'm going to get that fucker back. He just seems kind of pissed about the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, He's kind of a dick. And right. this is why, this is why I don't hate Will Decker, because I think a lot, of, a lot of Decker's, like, frustrations with Kirk are totally valid, totally no, no. justifiable. He, he, Kirk, he basically, you know, Kirk had, oh, well, you acted correctly. Well, right. I trust you'll nurse like, made me through these situations, you we, know. We see how Kirk deals with, uh, you know, like, admirals or Starfleet bureaucrats on the original series in episodes like Galileo 7 or Trouble with Tribbles. Like, he really hates when someone, like, comes onto his ship and tries to, like, boss him around. Yeah. And he's like, no, I, I'm, I'm the captain of the ship. So imagine him becoming a guy who goes onto the Enterprise and, and starts bossing the captain around. That's, that's also, a good point, yeah. Kirk has been a Starfleet Admiral for three for two and a half years, but the the Enterprise has only been in dry dock for eighteen months. So was Decker actually commanding the ship for a year and a half or something? I mean, I don't Did think he so. actually I, get to do some mission stuff. I think it was just like all um, supervising the refit. But I mean, yeah, like that's well, possible. the refit was only eighteen months. There's two and a half years yeah, that Kirk but, was not. So where's the command. novels that chronicle that? Because I'd probably read them. De- Decker yeah. could have been like you know like. 
uh, on the planet trying to like plan out the refit for 18 months before they actually start the yeah, refit. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it doesn't have to have been him who was what? in charge. I'm just saying that, that there's a little gap there that somebody was they, doing They were all on vacation. The they were either at Ryza or uh, Sherman's Pleasure Planet. <laughs> don't they just have the sh- ships sitting around? Maybe they did a tour where they, you know, because it was real famous oh, when it came back. Speaking of tour, I just have to mention something I completely forgot until I rewatched it. Um, the uh, I was thinking of the uh, Grand Tour of the Solar System for, uh, well, the Voyager probes. Uh, I did not remember they did a flyby of the Jupiter system. Yes. I loved it. And it was a, it was, yeah. it was very, it was like within like a, about maybe a year uh, after we had the, uh, uh, the actual Voyager flyby oh, of Jupiter. So those, those were like, you know, super accurate, accurate. Uh, images. And it looks fantastic still. I feel like it Love inspired... Kind of foreshadowing. Yeah. I think it inspired a lot of the opening sequences for subsequent Star Trek series like Next Generation and Voyager. And yeah, stuff the kind like of that. eye candy flyby shots. Yeah, and it does look, it does look great. Uh, but not to get us off track. So what do, what do you guys think about uh, Decker uh, as a character? And I should also mention, I, I don't believe this ever comes up in the, uh, in the movie, but he is um, Matt Decker's son. Right. Yes, uh, Matt from, Decker from the Doomsday from Machine, Machine yeah. uh, who was I was one of my favorite guest stars in the original. Not just because he has an awesome, awesome first name, but it's also a great character. <laughs> and there's another one of those high-ranking Federation officials that tried to boss Kirk around, and Kirk yeah. didn't like it. Yes. So he ends up doing to Matt Decker's son what Matt Decker had done to him. Yeah. <laughs> Matt a, Decker at least true. had the excuse that his crew had just died. <laughs> yeah. That's that, that that's true. Um, yeah, that's a better excuse than a, a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Decker's a character. Um, obviously, he uh, it's it's been a while. He, he feels very uh, uh, Riker esque. Yeah, he's actually. a pretty classic heroic guy who can also compromise when needed. But he'll he's clearly at least he feels he's earned what he's got, and he doesn't like losing it. And I can empathize with. He his... never really seems to be in the wrong, except you know you, you might. Uh, Say, like, when he complains that Kirk hasn't logged any star hours in two and a half years. Uh, star hours? Is that, am I remembering right? Yeah, that's I'm what the man sure. said. Uh, yeah. but, um, hey, they said dumb shit like that on the original series all the time. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it doesn't feel <laughs> out of place. Star hours, all. space minutes, I'm, I'm fine uh, well, with it. Well, it, it, it's star hours or hours where you were out in on a mission. No, no, and, and it's like... It's like planet air, hours. Right, planet. it's like flight timer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, I remember thinking, it's like, hey, it's like, dude, don't... Don't be giving Kirk shit. He's he's awesome, but except for you know minor quibbles like that, he's but he's much right. Always in the right. Kirk has lost his mojo. He do, is actually right that that two and a half hours has done or two and a half years has done something to Kirk. That's so why, that's he's rude and he's mean about it, but he's also right. Well, and he's <laughs> I'm really he's, he's he's doing the the EXO's job of this is something I need you need to know. Uh, because it's affecting the mission, so yeah. I'm going to... The tricky thing you. is, we had, over the course of three seasons of the original show, built up a lot of love for Kirk, and nobody wants to see a character that you that's an icon to well, you trash-talked a little bit. So just on an instinctive level, I think you were like, shut up, Decker. Yeah. Sure. Well, also, and at that point in the movie, it's not quite clear how much Mojo Kirk has lost. Um, but uh, Kirk is pretty much a minor deity in the 60s Star Trek. <laughs> he never, almost never makes a mistake. Yeah. He almost never does the wrong thing. Or when he does, it's clearly because he's been fed wrong information and it's very understandable why he made that mistake. Um, this is a Kirk who's flawed. This is a Kirk who's dealing with internal issues. And uh, for the first time, just about ever, we're seeing a Kirk who is actually 
stumbling because of his internal <laughs> issues. You know, and that, I like seeing that. It's just, I think it, um, again, I, uh, I, I keep comparing it to, uh, to Wrath of Khan, but there I think you have a, uh, a, a, a flawed Kirk who is, um, who doesn't, it doesn't feel like uh, uh, he's losing the character that, uh, that we grew up with. Uh, there's something I, I mean, don't know. You don't see Kirk, Kirk on the classic show get melancholy too often. So, and he was all over the place in Wrath of Khan. Sure, yeah. I, it, it seems to I me mean, that to me it's just almost the difference between uh, to me uh, just a punchier script um, in, in Wrath of Khan, and, and this one doesn't quite grab me as much. It's not just the script. I was, um, uh, I think, some of it too is some of these these character scenes where you're having, you know, uh, when. Kirk and McCoy um, uh, first meet again in the mm-hmm. transporter room uh, or have a conversation in Kirk's quarters. Uh, some of those scenes are uh, too abrupt. Uh, the dialogue is a little too clipped. Um, mm. You don't, uh, even if even if the length of the scene is comparable to uh, similar scenes that we've seen in the classic series or in Wrath of Khan, uh, they don't feel as uh, meaningful. I guess... Some of that is Robert Wise. I, I think uh, that's kind of how people act in a Robert Wise film. That's how he likes his people to act. And in his other films, they have that same sort of yeah, I, I can, texture. I, feels a little Andromeda strainish when yeah, I think about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I, so, I, and also, they're not supposed to be acting like they used to be because the whole point is they're broken. They're, they're not quite there yet sure. at those points. I will say a very valid complaint is that we never really quite get the point of payoff on Kirk getting his mojo back a real distinct oh Kirk's back right we see this we see that uh, Spock gets his moment yes it, but it, Kirk it, it, does not subtle. I think you're right that is a mistake it's there it, but it just it, drifts into it, that it's subtle and it's when it's when they they finally like encounter the the V'ger cloud and 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 it, the stakes get really high it gets really dangerous and it's like then like Kirk knows what to do like like when yeah. when the the heat is on he like that's oh, that's when I mean, he... i'm arguing with a computer i can do that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. it's and... weird because i think you know what i think trek doesn't very often really do subtlety it can have nuance to a scene but subtlety is not too often what they, this this is a show where people make grand speeches and half black half white characters <laughs> represent racism and uh, well that's kind of the Kirk... extreme representation and of at the end issue, of wrath yes. of khan he says i feel young as opposed to feeling old, you yes, know? yes. yes. Um, sometimes it's it's rather broad and grandiose. So I, I think that's part of you know it, it's one of the issues fans have, one of the issues I have. Yeah. But um, I'll, can can I quick say a, an aesthetic thing about the the look of it? Uh, about how the look is also a big contributing factor into why people think this movie is is dull and bland. I guess so, but I, I, I'll say this: I like it's a very unified look, and I within its own aesthetics, I like it. Uh, I think they, they're, it's very, it has a bit of that 70s look, but if you have anybody ever went to like Epcot or something like in the 80s, uh, or I didn't go in the 70s, but I feel like even in the 80s they still had stuff there that looked 70s-ish. Or if you look at old books from the era that was the futurism of the, st- of the time, that's what it looks like, and it, it's a pretty cool melding of that with some classic Trek motifs. It just needs color. I think all the designs are very strong, and there's like some good ideas, like like this giant view screen that he talks to Uhura and Chekhov on, <laughs> and uh, the you, the ships look good. Um, the V'ger stuff all looks incredible. 
but it's like everything on the Enterprise is is gray or beige or, <laughs> yeah. or off white. They had those dark red maroon corridors and stuff in, on the the, the captain's quarters and stuff outside the captain's quarters. That, that still didn't really pop. And then you get like everything on V'ger is like blue or black. Yeah. So it's like you you have like two different color schemes and and they're both. It also depends on which version. The mo the 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 Blu-ray version is way bluer. Than the, than the, the director's yeah the director's DVD. I feel like there this was uh, that kind of NASA aesthetic that they were going for to mm-hmm. again which I which I thought was unnecessary to sell the idea that this is a real ship we're really in space look we have airlocks look we can float in space and so on which in Star Trek it's like I, I already believe the ship can fly you don't need to sell me on <laughs> yeah. this we got- I, I believe we're in space. I don't need to be convinced. We've got three seasons of, of this. Like, we know how it works. But it kind of feels like Robert Wise doing that um, lengthy introduction to uh, In the Andromeda Strain uh, to, to the, 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 to base. the underground base, yeah. where you get an overview of all the levels and what they all mean. Uh, similarly, we get the big flyby <coughs> surprise, which is very grandiose. I don't want to complain about that. But it feels like some of that was uh, unnecessary if your point is... Look, this is a real space traveling vehicle uh, that could exist in the real world. I think it was also a lot of Roddenberry wanting the the ship and the crew to look more NASA astronauts than military. Right. Well, yeah, I, I know he did not want a military look to it, which um, uh, I can, one, of, one of his big problems with, with the Wrath of Khan. It's funny because as a kid, as we've often I've brought up a few times on the show, I really love the maroon uniforms of that. But then I would like uh, the more I thought about it, the more the less I liked how military those look, uh, just kind of conceptually. Would you prefer the motion picture beige pajamas? No, I mean like like I, I would I would still take the red, I, the red uniform. I, I miss I, I miss the uh, uh, the classic Trek uh, yeah uh, colored tunics. Yeah, I wish like if they had like these exact same uniforms, so it just have like the the blue, the red, and the gold. There are so many different, so many different costume changes here. You know, Kirsch got the short sleeve, like yeah, the space three different dentist. versions of long, long sleeve. <laughs> Father, he calls it the space dentist shirt. <laughs> yeah. he, he changes. I think his he shirt looks like, like a sailor. He changes his shirt like five times in this movie. Yeah, I cannot tell. It's like uh, you know, with the space dentist one, you can see is his like his manly physique. <laughs> that's true. I probably my 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 favorite of the uh, uh, of the new costumes is. Um, Beardless McCoy or Bearded McCoy, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, uh, like his his uh, party disco. Yeah, yeah like, his, his, oh, his disco look with the, uh, the, the <laughs> just beat neck and the uh, they just beat him out of uh, Studio yeah. Fifty Four. Yeah, he was he was about to do a line of coke right before they beat him. <laughs> That's why he was like so cranky and pissed. I thought I like what they were going for in those uniforms. The the care to get the color, the more diversified color schemes behind the little badges, um, and and the 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 little purse scan belt buckles that would monitor you and uh, m- monitor your medical status and relay the information to sick bay okay. and the new communicators that they wore on the wrist and keeping the the rank stripes. Of the the, 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 the the old 60s Star Trek uh, rank system on the yeah, sleeves. I always like those. Um, those yeah, actual but, Navy stuff. Uh, yeah, but I will agree that in execution, something about the colors and... I, I even like the idea that, that there's like... Each person has like eight different options that they can pick to individualize themselves. And it's not about trying to make everyone feel like they're the same and that you're you're part of a machine. Right. They, they 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 literally have like eight different choices each right. person. The notion of individualism idea. Yeah. individualism yeah. within a what has always been at least quasi military. Yeah. Um uh, is is a nice idea. That is yeah. an interesting idea. 
And we, uh, but something the about the final execution is lacking. I will grant you. Well, I, one thing I do really <laughs> like about like the the look of the ship and the, and the crew are the fact that we see uh, like a variety of alien species in that, yeah. that yes. rec room shot. There's Andorians. There's Vulcans. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a big forehead. Metal Lunin, uh, I think, um, from yeah. this island Earth. Uh, <laughs> And then, yeah, the, the the guy with the enormous forehead and the yeah, eyes. Yeah, we see, like, a member of his species in uh, Way to Eden. Uh, he was one of the space hippies. I was going to say, it's like, wait, but that guy was not meant to be... That was just a, a big forehead guy, right? No, I thought that was an actual, like, alien. Oh, really? I just thought they just hired a guy who was 90% forehead. Oh. No, that's... Oh. There is definitely in Star not, Trek, like, in not, 60s Star Trek, that, that <laughs> isn't. Not like the main guy who played the guitar, but, like, yeah. one, one yeah, of the Yeah, no, no, I, I know the guy you're talking about, but I... All right, I'm going to have to rewatch that... Uh, Episode yeah, but that but, one. That one is uh, actually a, a favorite of my wife's because uh, of the anything Spock centric. I, I like that of. episode. I, I think it's uh, actually a lot better than a lot of people give it credit for. I haven't seen it in uh, like all a the, decade. All plus, the third season so, episodes get some shit, so we should watch that yeah. sometimes. Yeah, uh, but uh, I'll come back when you guys review that episode. Randorite, I believe, is the name of that species, according to like the the motion picture like uh, material that they had for like they named all those species <laughs> that we see on and on the Enterprise and on Starfleet HQ. Which is kind of a symptom of, they put so much effort, in, in in part because they had a bunch of time where they were designing stuff that they because they were waiting for a script. So much effort into all the little things. Coming up with backstories for the species. Coming up with the, making sure the switches work. Star Trek has never before or again been taken so seriously. No, that's a, that's a good point. It, it kind of feels like, an, uh, uh, I, I guess that is probably not appreciated as much as it should be. While we're talking about aliens with backstories, um, what do you guys think about uh, Ilea? I was about to bring her up. And uh, having having Ilea and Decker, they're so obviously like the proto Riker and Troy. Right. Like I, like, I keep waiting for them to call one another Mzadi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, they, they were originally designed to be uh, ongoing characters in the show Star Trek Phase 2. In fact, when they hired these actors, they thought they were going to have jobs on, on a TV show. Right, um, Stephen Collins, and then her name is Persis Kambata. Yeah, and yeah. as I, I, I like it because it sounds so awesome. It sounds like Perseus Combat. <laughs> it would be like a name of like an Autobot or something. <laughs> yes, but um, yeah, and, and she famously had to shave her head. She was like a, a beautiful Indian model, like one Miss India, mm-hmm. and had to uh, shave her hair uh, for this role that. She was kind of like forgotten about after after she had like this one this one part in this one movie. Very iconic. Well, you know what? It strikes me though. They do feel. You know how like in in, in many treks, in the sort of next generation and onward era, there's that first season of finding your footing, or sometimes right. several seasons. Uh, they their characters both feel that way to me. Like they they feel like first episode like encounter at far point level characters. That I feel like could have grown into the Riker we love, the Troy we like. <laughs> Sorry, she just never got a lot. She never got a lot to do. Wow, she doesn't. I like Troy. Just threw her under the bus. But, <laughs> I just I didn't mean to do that. But they feel like they needed a few a, a TV show to grow into. Well, I feel like this is this is where uh, you know there is you know if you if you read the novelizations like oh here's some backstory it's like oh that's why everybody makes a big deal about Deltons. But here, other than I think. Two references to an oath of celibacy, which is so fucking weird. You have yeah. to, when, you have to wonder. It's like, uh, you know, I remember twelve-year-old me was what? What so, celibacy? So <laughs> what's what's the idea of the Deltons? The, they just like want to fuck uncontrollably all the time. Or? Uh, according to the novelization, they are they tend to 
Like they really go in for free love on their planet, and that's the way. Like they'll have they'll have science dissertations, which is an orgy or stuff. They, they communicate with telepathic sexual contact. Such a, a Roddenberry yes, idea. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna that and and so. But the problem is their sex is so mind blowing that it will a normal human often will go nuts if exposed to it. So in order to be in a Starfleet ship, you've got to take this oath of celibacy mm-hmm. and you're you're not going to fuck up our crew. I mean, literally, <laughs> don't fuck up our crew. Do they, do they exude and, pheromones? Yes, there's yes. also a pheromone they thing. They just walk by in. and you're like, oh, in Bonerville. Re- yes. Well, actually, I remember, at least I think I remember, because I read the novelization like 23, let's say 30 years ago. Uh, but I still remember this one scene. You can probably correct me and tell me if I am inventing this out of uh, my own disturbed mind. But I recall that uh, when Ilea is on the bridge, and uh, I, I think Sulu is uh, asked to, you know, help her out with show her where the It's a deleted, deleted scene from the movie. And uh, he is uh, embarrassed about having to stand up because he's got a boner. Well, that was not in the deleted scene, but yeah. he, he does like kind well, of. I, like, I remember the actually deleted scene where yeah, he's I sort of awkward and funny. They don't but, explicitly yeah. spell it out in the novel, but it, when I went back and read His it as an adult, I was like, "Oh, oh, that's what's going on there." Yeah. 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 Okay. So it is. It, it's. It's. You could have a kid read it, and they wouldn't necessarily figure out exactly mm-hmm. what they're referring to, but there I, is something like but that. That's kind of like this is unforgivable for the movie to have like a character like come onto the bridge and be like, "Oh yeah, my oath of celibacy is on record," and then never explain that. Like sure, it's yeah. explained in the novel. But yeah, you can't I expect agree. your audience to go like read the book to no, understand. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, agree. When Hura says she's dealt in, and everybody's you know, uh, Sulu and Chekhov are like, whoa, you know, they exchange looks, uh, and you're wondering like, oh wow, what are we? I, I don't get it. It's the uh, Chekhov's gut thing, yeah, sort of the, the uh, Chekhov celibacy, yeah, literally. Yes, yeah, <laughs> they, they they set it up much better in the novel, and they pay it off much better in the novel. Um, than what we get in the movie, and you're right; they probably just should have dropped it all yeah. together. But Roddenberry, yeah, that would have been a, that would have been a hill to die on if you're an uh, old pervert Roddenberry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure it, that's what uh, happened. You know, there. I, I love the guy, but that's such like a, a typical. That's like kind of how you wanted to originally give Counselor Troy three breasts in the Next Generation. Yeah, and Dorothy Fontana actually like talked him out of it. <laughs> is he like? But, uh, would he like be what we would now think of somewhat as the fedora wearing feminist uh, male feminist guy who's like uh, no predatory like, uh, sort of uh, I mean, feminist? No, like all all the women who like worked with him tend to say like good things. Okay, about him. they're yeah. all like, yeah, I was sleeping with Gene, but like, <laughs> like, like, like none of them were like, to say anything. Like he did not they, treat them poorly. Yeah, yeah, he did it not was all act very like consensual. They were, right. is the impression I um, get. So but, uh... <laughs> yeah, just like the Dalton thing is weird, and and for a movie that is so uh, dry, it does uh, manage to pack in so much sexuality. It's oh, yes. so much <laughs> sexual. This G-rated films. Yes. yes. Uh, which, was oh. that even a consideration? Uh, it was like, well, we want to explain it, but we don't want to lose our coveted G rating. Uh, no, no. I don't know. That might have been why we didn't get more Ilea stuff. Um, and maybe there was, I have this mental flash of Robert Wise saying, we have to keep it G, a G rated. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise, Roddenberry will have naked Ilea in every scene. <laughs> <laughs> At least we did, get a, we did get our shower scene, but, uh, but uh, it's a little muted. Um, well, yeah. well, they talked about that. Like, doesn't Kirk summon up the something for her to wear, which happens to be this like super short robe? Yeah. Yes. So she's walking around in the super short bathrobe, like the rest of the movie. It's also kind of awkward. We have like then Hollywood does this all the time. 
Um, but it's something that's like it was kind of like brought to my attention a few years ago, and I noticed it in everything. But you always have like a young actress who's like in her twenties, and she's often like depicted in a very sexual manner, and having to act against uh, a bunch of men that are much older, uh, often in like their forties or fifties or sixties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We just have to be lucky that Decker is even here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I also watched the uh, the Red Letter Media. Uh, video on youtube about this movie that i, I recommend I, I like their content oh, in mean, general you uh, you recommended that uh yeah to me and i've not watched it yet yeah they, they did the uh the fabulous uh plinket reviews of, of the star wars actually i don't movies, know if i've seen but... this particular one i've watched some of his ones but i don't think i watched the motion Wait. picture did he like it um yeah like 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 they love this movie uh-huh. but um one of the things that they pointed out that i'd never noticed before with some of the ilea sexuality is that is, is like kind of weird and icky, but when Ilea comes back as the probe and she's on the the bio bed getting scanned by mm-hmm. now Doctor Chapel, right? And she says something about, um, oh, like it's like a perfect identical replication of of, of her body, like uh, even a uh, even eye moisture, and it's like and, like it cuts to like Decker and like he gets like like this like lovey dovey look in his eyes and it starts playing like the romantic theme. I guess that's another theme that's in there. There is like a romantic idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's like oh, yeah, like she can get moist. <laughs> well, yeah, she says she she says even the uh, even the eye moisture. And then I, I think either right before or right after she says like like all her exocrine Exos- functions, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was the first time I think I'd heard exocrine. I'm like, oh well, yeah. endocrine, exocrine. I guess that every exocrine system, even yes. eye moisture, yeah. yes. So it's like yes, every, <laughs> everything that secretes. Uh, which is I, yes, the, the Decker reaction. I, don't know. I think Decker's looking there because he's seeing the woman he loves. Sure, but that I mean, was the vibe. It's not like oh, that's I gotta the, stick my dick in that. That's, you that's know? the vibe that's you get. But it's it's kind of funny that like that's how the line was written. Yeah. And knowing Roddenberry, that right. might yeah. have been the, intentional. Well, the novelization the is interesting. Line happens much later because you jump into Kirk's head, and Kirk's kind of like. Oh, that is one hot android. <laughs> mission, mission, and, and then Decker's kind of like, my God, it's the woman I love trapped in this android body, and you get both views. And Kirk is like, oh, we've got to figure out a way to manipulate the computer. But no, Decker, she loves Decker. It's well, yeah. got to be Decker. It can't be me. I want it to be me, but it can't be me because she loves. Decker and in the novel that's one one more point where you realize Kirk has got his mojo back was because Kirk you know hands it hands his off. doggery had yeah yeah he realizes that no even though I'm great at de- dealing with computers and alien space babes this particular one is Decker's thing we're well, gonna be having flashbacks to uh, Reina yeah. uh, is that right from Methuselah syndrome yes yeah yes. yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that is cool to have like Kurt kind of mentoring Decker, and it was like, yeah, two of the things you got to learn if you're gonna be captain of the Enterprise is how to like uh, outsmart computers and defeat their programming, and also like uh, like seduce the, the the strange alien woman. <laughs> yes, that's gonna be yes. pretty much like when you're when you're hitting captain level. It's like yeah, you have to do the Kobayashi Maru, but most of your simulator training is gonna be those two things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another weird uh, Ilea sexual thing is when Spock does the like the, the really fantastic uh, journey into into V'ger. right? And, uh, and when he encounters like the 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 image of her, the, like the hologram or the representation mm-hmm. of her, like the um, he, he mentions the like the 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 circular pink object 
and the, the, the center of her that he has to mind meld with the the, the, the sensor that's like all her, her all her it's hard to find <laughs> but I think with so, some work and he also he also flies through what looks like a big space vagina surrounded yeah. by some some moons no, that no. might might be like like eggs or ovaries George O'Keefe's uh, space clown yeah, yeah. 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 the movie is is filled with this sexuality and you sexual might even say symbolism. it's pregnant with them well it is at the end that's what they they deliver a baby at the end that is literally what I happens I notice uh, well, you know one thing I liked as long as we're kind of in here is like the geography of the interior of the cloud which seems to include like like these these vast vistas that sometimes seem like they're planetary or right. like they're like machine like or whatever uh, sometimes are more amorphous like clouds but it does feel like there's a like a true geography to it which right. is well, it is it is about the size of a solar system, I think. Uh, well, eighty-two they, AU. They, is what they in, say. It depends on what version of the movie you watch. On the in the theatrical cut, they say it's eighty-two AUs. An AU being the distance from the sun to Earth. Earth's orbit. Right. Eight light um, minutes. And uh, in the director's cut, they they take the ridiculous eighty-two AUs and make it a less ridiculous but still pretty ridic- ridiculous two AUs. Okay. And my thing is, like anything that big, Still why would chunky. why would three Klingon battle cruisers try to I, attack it? In the novelization, they state these were the only Klingons who were close enough to intercept it. It was going so the warp seven, well, it just like, that was all they had. I assume that you know, like the, the Klingon version of you know, give me a sensor reading is fire photon torpedoes at it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So okay, I, I like to believe it might have like wiped out their battle fleet or something, and they're trying to like get revenge and die in the process. Well, and go the novelization is like very clear that that was all they and, and what does Starfleet have? One ship. The Klingons had three. They were three times better than Starfleet at intercepting. Yeah, they, were, they were more prepared. And even then they were only intercepting it as it was leaving their space. They were that, that by the time they got um, to it. I, I, did, I did mention Dr. Chapel a minute ago. I think we should bring up the, the support characters and how not right. only is it really cool that they bring back, you know, Sulu, Chekhov, Uhura, right. which they totally could have not done that. Right. Um, but not only do they do that, but they also, like, bring in uh, Christine Chapel right. as well as Janice, Janice Rand, Rand, which yeah. I think is remarkable that they would go back to the characters only well, let's around be honest, half Chapel of the first was, season. Unless Chapel didn't want to, or Michelle Barrett or, uh, didn't want to be in it. She was going to be in it. <coughs> well, she's married to Gene Roddenberry. Sure. You but, know, but, as a, but bringing back your peripheral characters, but Rand uh, is actually a bit of a impressive, yeah, nice so. bit of continuity. Uh, unfortunate scene that she presides over a transporter accident. <laughs> but it actually, well, Kirk was the screw up there. Yeah. Uh, well, no, in that one, it's it's just a that one is purely a, um, you know, we're beaming up and. It just happens. Not quite. Well, I think as you pointed out, in the, I think this is a novelization thing. He wonders if he. It could have been. Yeah, it could he, have had something he, to do. The with control it. panel was in the novel. The control panel's laid out different than it. it used to be, and he has to look around <laughs> yeah. for one of the switches. The scrambler button is not where yeah, it used the mat, to be. The Matagain <laughs> button. I actually remember what button it was. The Matagain <laughs> button. Oh, right. And uh, he afterwards wonders if I'd hit that button faster, would it have made a difference? I don't know. All right, <laughs> I've got to move on. We have other issues. But <laughs> I feel like we're we're bringing the novel up about uh, as much as, as the movie. Well, well that's no. somewhat telling. Yeah. Um, the fact but, that you need to, you need to go there for uh, for backstory, yeah, uh, including important filling in important uh, character background that is brought up but not explained. Yeah, it, I, that's a good point. It's 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 arguably a reasonable criticism, but I also do think, if nothing else, it also means people might want to read the novel. Yeah, I read sure. it once upon a time and enjoyed it. It's 
It's it, it has a lot more little details and stuff from the background and, and more thoughts about 23rd century life. Right. Yeah. Kirk's, um, Kirk's previous marriage. Uh, right. Some interesting yeah. stuff. Speaking of Kirk's previous marriage, uh, is it uh, Chief DeFalco or Crewman DeFalco who takes over Ilea's station? Right. Was played by Shatner's then wife. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's and, right. Uh, James Doohan's kids are in the movie. Uh, Robert Wise's wife is one of the extras in the, that rec room scene. So I think a lot of people did think. Are James that, Doohan's kids like the ones in that forced perspective shot? I think one of them's there, and then one of them was like older, might have been like actually like an officer, like in in that rec room. Forced perspective but, uh, in the uh, uh, engine room where you see the, the uh, warp core going way back. Oh, like, the yeah, nacelle yeah. shot. They had, like uh, a, a kid in the background. Yeah, the guys in the guys in uh, suits in the background are kids, <laughs> so it <they laughs> looks bigger. Yeah. Right, right. And you can kind of tell they're kids because like they move around like really goofy, with, like, <laughs> stupid child I, body. Yeah, as many like, times as I've watched thing. it, I've never noticed that they look like kids. I, I've never looked for it though, to be fair. Mm. But we'll, we'll notice it now. now yeah, right? probably. Yeah, you can't watch anything. Uh, but yeah, the fact that like they have all these people's family members and stuff, I think they did think this was going to be like a really big, cool thing. Like maybe this would springboard. Uh, a, a new major series of films like what was going on with Star Wars or at least they thought this was going to be like a really cool send-off to to this big franchise that had changed all of their careers and their lives up until this point. So I think they, everyone thought this, this was going to have a whole lot of, of ceremony around it. Uh, having, I, not recalling the, I was too much of a kid to know uh, at the time, but like, what was the general public reaction? It, like, like, what was the reviewers' The reaction? critics did not like it. It did make a lot of money. It, it sold a lot of tickets. A lot of tickets. <laughs> it's like one of those things like Avatar where it sold a lot of tickets and afterwards everybody backlashed. Well, it was also, it was also just so expensive to make, uh, that, uh, uh, I mean, it, it did... You know, it, it didn't lose money, but... Right. Uh, but it didn't make the money... With the $42 million price tag, it did not make the money they'd hoped for, despite yeah. the ridiculous number of tickets. And fans and critics were all kind of... Eh, it's something. <laughs> you, know, you know how, like, uh, I've got some friends who... Uh, uh, I don't know if any of y'all are uh, among the people who, like, uh, are not really into, like, Lord of the Rings or uh, whether you're talking about the books or the movies. Mm -hmm. And one of the common complaints is that kind of all that travel time, there's a lot of travel time. This movie is a little bit Lord of the Rings of space in that there's a lot of looking at view screens and vast oh. vistas and traveling it, time. Yeah, if you're watching the, the, the theatrical cut, the one that's on Blu-ray that I think most people are going to be watching nowadays, there is, like, an 11-minute sequence where there's, like, maybe three or four lines of dialogue and the rest is this actor is standing on the bridge looking at the view screen and all these super long special effects shots that, that do look uh, awesome and, and stunning and fantastic in HD. But the, the, and the, the, you know, the story with that, how the movie was edited together is that uh, because the, they were under such a time crunch that the, uh, they, they assembled uh, a, a rough cut of the movie and Robert Wise actually had to go to the premiere, which was in Washington, with, he had to fly on the airplane with the, the finalized uh, film canister, like, in his arms, because they had, like, just then finished it. And, and, you know, he watched it at the premiere, and he, he did want to go back and trim down some of the shots. They were just, like, put in there in their entirety, and, and hadn't been, like, edited and trimmed. But there was no time. The, the, the theatrical release was only like two weeks away and there is no time to make any last minute changes also the studio was scared that word would get out that they had to like modify the movie after the premiere they didn't want any like negative press 
Right. Mm-hmm. So some of its some of those somewhat overlong scenes are are were just a facet of its of its rushed filmmaking. Yeah. Which I I would say that uh, the director's cut is is the better way to watch this movie because it is closer to what the the vision of it uh, was was intended to be. And it's more entertaining. <laughs> yeah, it, it just works better as a movie. But should we uh, get into like the, like the finale of the movie when when Beecher does uh, arrive at Earth? And yeah. uh, you know, one thing I want to talk about when we discuss these movies is uh, the stakes tend to be higher in the movies than than on the show, yeah. right? And this is kind of the the first time that you have like Earth itself is in jeopardy. Well, that's how this story got picked. They had a bunch of phase two scripts lying and outlines lying in front of them and like, okay, we're going to make a movie instead. Which one of these do you want to make a movie out of? They said, well, here's one where something attacks Earth. Well, that's cooler than anything else on the table. We're doing that. And, and really so. wasn't, and hadn't really much been done in the series or done at all, did we decide? No, nothing like that. Actually, in the Changeling, they do establish that Nomad, like, uh, it will go back to Earth in its quest to find its creator, uh, uh, Boyker. Right. And it, it did say it would sterilize the Earth. Okay. But I think that might actually be the only time in the original series where Earth is, is in danger. Unless you count, like, when, when the past was altered and sitting yeah. on the edge of forever and stuff like right. that. I don't know. Was there was there any was there a, a serious timeline threat? Uh, there wasn't in, in Simon Earth also, uh, just because you're mucking around in the past. Yeah. Um, yes. So so those are really but that's high almost stakes, more one of those but... past future things. A little ways like that's, City on the Edge of Well, yeah, they weren't threatening twenty third century. Yeah, that can be like you step on a butterfly. And not, you're going to annihilate the Earth with, you know... Which became a theme in the movies with the Borg coming to annihilate Earth, the whale probe coming to annihilate Earth, Nero... Yeah, it became a trope. Whatever, yeah. (laughs) But yes, uh, interestingly, I I tend to prefer uh, stories that are are smaller, less... um, that are not so grand. I like the. Uh, I guess they feel. I feel like they give more room to focus on the characters. The, the more personal stuff. Yeah. Um, do you mean like on the shows? Because the movies are almost all grandiose. Um, uh, do, do you generally like the movies? Oh yes. Uh, but no, I, I suppose because um, most of them do have some element of let's embiggen it. True. Well, I. They all do. Rather, rather uh, or, and also, I, and well, ironically, it's like let's make it bigger, but let's also kind of follow some plot tropes. You know, I, I suppose that is I, it is too much of a blanket statement to make. It's it's the character moments that I appreciate more, and there seems to be more of a uh, focus on them when you don't have quite so uh, you know universe shattering um, menaces to worry about. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, let's let's talk about um, uh, Vijay is going to. Destroy Earth because yeah, it, uh, the creator at, does not going answer. after the carbon units because like it, right. it, where's the creator? Why would the creator respond? And here is where we see I think like the, the definitive moment where you can think okay, Decker probably wouldn't have handled this right or handled it in the way that that Kirk can handle it and succeed when when he uh, walks out of the bridge. He's like, um, oh well, we're just not going to tell you about the the creator then and. And yeah, I know why the creator has not responded. Yeah, that moment that is, is the line when when Kirk says, uh, uh, or sorry, when Spock says, uh, "Treat it like a child." You see that you see that light bulb moment for Kirk. You know he he has that. Um, I'm good at novelty gambits, right? <laughs> With well, computers, especially, yeah. right? He he is specifically. It's like oh, this is an M5 moment. Got it. Right. Uh, or in Corbomite maneuver. Or right. Yeah. It, it feels very much like uh, that's the moment when. Everything clicks for Kirk, uh, and it's it's still you know very high stakes. The ship gets uh, you know bounced you, around a lot. If you hadn't realized Kirk had got his mojo back at any bit before the moment he turns and says, "I know why the creator has not responded," you realize, okay, he's got it back now. If you if you didn't already realize, I, it. I like the the <laughs> moments of, of Kirk uh, like uh, 
gambling like that where he he's like yeah this thing's like gonna call my bluff and like you know he kind of does it in uh, let that be your last battlefield when he does the self-destruct sequence on the enterprise and right uh, a few other times I'm but sure. there at least he's like he's got a plan he's gonna get them to back down or they'll die here he's like i have no idea why the creator hasn't <laughs> responded but i have to save earth and this is the only thing that will do that that will give right. us breathing space it, it, it's, it's you know? the corbomite maneuver yeah. basically but he also does the um he also uh, in the, i think this is just in the director's cut where he also has the backup plan of the um uh, self-destruct sequence yes. yeah and, and we have scotty explain it to uh somehow like you can go through starfleet training and get on the enterprise and still not know like what matter uh mixing with antimatter can do and you <laughs> yeah. need well, Scotty to explain it to you as well as the audience <laughs> well to be fair this is an engineering crew member who probably doesn't realize that i mean uh, antimatter explosion, if you're 82 or 2 AU across, isn't going to be meaningful. But if you can get yourself to the central cortex element of the brain of V'ger, and V'ger itself is only about the size of New York, um, then and detonate, and detonate it there, then that will make a difference. But sure. the engineer might know, not know the grand complexity <laughs> of where we are and what we're doing. So. Another reason why you should probably watch the director's cut, if you can find the DVD or uh, find it online somewhere... iTunes has it. That's what I had to do. Yeah, I actually, and I bought it on the PlayStation Store, Um, so you can get it on on your your game consoles, apparently. Oh, okay. But um, you actually see the ship that's at the center of the cloud. In in the theatrical cut, you never see a a good exterior shot of the ship. You just see Mm -hmm. the the graphic on the Enterprise bridge that's a representation of it. And I think it doesn't really convey exactly what's going on. Yeah, I always thought that was a targeting bullseye thing or something when I it, when I watched the theatrical cut. You know, cut. one thing I wanted to quick ask is, do y'all have a memory of like the first time you saw this? The moment when you find out that V'ger is the same mm-hmm. thing as Voyager—that is, it's the old Earth space probe—was um, that a big thing for you? Because when I was a kid, it was kind of a big thing, like an M Night Shyamalan twist. I uh, I had had it spoiled for me in a magazine article. Starlog? Uh, no, it was uh, it was some crappy black and white. Lasted for two issues. I forget the the title of but it. Like but like a science fiction magazine yeah. or something. And it uh, it said, well, based on early reports, it sounds like this movie is just a a, a knockoff of the Changeling episode. Nah. And I remember thinking, no way, this magazine sucks. They would not just do a retread of that episode. <laughs> it's totally wrong. Uh, but it. Turns out that was accurate. Uh, so I was disappointed that it was... It, it felt to me very much like a, a Nomad retread. Uh, and I was not... You know, the seeing the, the actual, you know, very much looks like a Voyager 1 or 2 probe. Uh, it's neat, but I was disappointed. When I saw this movie for the first time, it actually took me a couple of years to track it down because I, I couldn't I couldn't rent it from my my local video store. They they only had Star Trek Two on up. Um, I actually didn't see this movie until I think it was 1996, and uh, yeah, I'd already seen like all the others, and I was watching the shows that were on. But it was awkward when to hear like Kirk say Voyager. And when he wipes off the, the debris, he's like, Voyager, yeah. Voyager 6. Because at this point, Star Trek Voyager was already a thing. <laughs> so it was like kind of weird and jarring to hear Kirk that's say so, Voyager. That's so that weird. weird. Yeah. But yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, also like the movie like didn't really impress me I was, as, a, as a kid. And I, I remember uh, a guy that my mom worked with had made some uh, salsa for me because like he knew like she had a kid who liked spicy food. And I have like stronger memories of that salsa that I was eating while I was watching the movie than the movie itself. Oh, that's hard. Now, 
You watched it a number of times as a kid, right? Yes, yes. It was one of the things that somebody... We had a, a tape of cartoons with the motion picture stuck on at the end of the Saturday morning cartoons. And I would watch the cartoons on my VHS machine as a little kid. And then I would just let it play a lot of times and watch the motion picture and yep. go... Wow. Um, I did not know what a Voyager space probe was when I first saw it. I did not know about any of that. I understood this is from Earth, Uh that this is something we built a long time ago. And as a little kid, I thought that was mind-blowing. I was like, oh my God, the whole thing is some old thing that they built a hundred years ago that went out and then grew and built itself into this amazing thing. Just like that runaway robot thing in in Superman three and that is so cool i think i was honestly closer to that reaction as a kid i thought it was really pretty cool yeah yeah i i did not get i the fact that it was a voyager probe was totally lost on me i I thought it was something they just made up for this movie i did notice uh in rewatching it uh the plaque on the side of the voyager probe has uh a a redesigned version of um uh, some of the elements on the actual the message to whoever might find it of the nude uh, man and woman uh, yeah. not the nude man and woman that was on a uh, pioneer but not okay. voyager oh, okay. but it does have the uh, uh the location of uh the solar system in relation to nearby pulsars mm-hmm. uh it's got uh i think a uh hydrogen atom uh, a few other things like that yeah it was it was a nice nice design touch yeah um i i do think that the climax of this movie does kind of work with uh maybe it's just like the the goldsmith score uh score going on is so good but the music can add a lot the the idea of decker deciding to volunteer to merge with with the machine and and that 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 uh shot of him where he says uh jim i want this as much as you wanted the enterprise i want this and uh it does what we were talking about earlier with like like the sexual themes of the movie is this is like beejer coming to adulthood (coughs) and i think like a lot of like the sexual curiosity associated with adolescence and and it basically it wants to like find god and fuck god (laughs) and create like this new life form and then like like the shot of of uh, Ilea and Decker, these people we know are former lovers, uh, kind of, almost like they're like on a molecular level, like they're gonna their energy is going to fuse together, and there's there's just very strong like sexual themes and and this a combination of a man and woman creating this new life form. Well, yeah, and Viger is kind of this giant sterile thing. Spock says, you know, this, and that is kind of the movie too. We are dealt they say, "Oh, the movie's so cold and sterile." Yeah, that's the point. It's supposed to be sterile because it needs to be fertilized by putting in a human element that opens and causes that new baby the, to be born. The sperm ship Enterprise. Yeah, yeah, that has to fly up through the orifice. And, you know, so. here's the thing. Like, as a kid, and I'm sure, did, did anybody catch any of that? Not as I didn't catch it as a kid. I'm I sure just, that. Uh... I mean, I might have been like a little bit of a weird kid. I mean, like '96, <laughs> I was I was ten, watching this, and I was kind of freaked out when McCoy says uh, like a uh, like uh, a man and machine like join physically. Is that possible? I was like, uh, like that that kind of like it creeped me something. out. Yeah, it was like like that's not that's not right. Like. You know, it occurs to me if I had else. a Borg kind of implant <laughs> thing in my head, when, you know, would wire it into a computer when they said that. If nothing else, even as a kid, as a kid, if you didn't understand exactly what the suggestion was with Decker and Ilya at the end, if nothing else, they seemed like Adam and Eve or something like that yeah. that you might have right. heard grown up with. Yeah. 
Um, it made sense to me as a kid, but I didn't. All the sexual imagery and symbolism in the film was completely lost on me. So, and then and then you have Doctor McCoy kind of like sums it up for the audience, and it's like, oh yeah, it's uh, delivering a, a a birth, a child. Yeah, and, and Country Doctor way he sums it up. Yeah, <laughs> for you simple folks out um, there. Yeah, yeah, this... <laughs> like me. <laughs> I, I do kind of feel like the story would probably work better as uh, an hour and a half on TV with like the commercials because it was going to be a two hour episode of yeah. Star Trek Phase Two. Um, it does feel like a little bit stretched out and and bloated. Uh, I, I would have been curious to see like that alternate reality version where this was just a TV episode. But there are some fan like, edits out there where they turn it into a two parter and try to fit it into an hour and a half and make it in a two hour television format. I had uh, I had always uh, thought that um, part of the problem, um, and I, I I don't think this is uh, uh, I don't think this really is a, is a valid uh, uh, argument that uh, the fact that uh, I think who's the uh, screenwriter is it Harold Livingston uh, I think he so the the movie was based on a story oh, by Alan Dean Foster by uh, yeah the Splinter of the Mind's Eye guy yeah but I think Living, Livingston is that right uh, he had written uh, some like. Mission Impossible scripts, but he was not a he was not a Star Trek fan or necessarily a science fiction fan. And um, when I uh, when I heard that I, many years ago, I thought, oh well, this is why the characters didn't seem to click, and uh, you know, every, some scenes felt kind of off to me, uh, especially the ensemble Kirk Spock McCoy scenes. But then Wrath of Khan, which I uh, I think works very well, uh, was mostly written by. Nicholas Meyer, who was a was Star also, Trek noob, was also yes, uh, completely uh, completely new to the series, uh, and just you know cranked the script out like that. So in twelve days, yeah. So it's <laughs> that's not necessarily the reason why uh, why some of this did not work for me. Right. Well, so, I think it could be said that the way that he fast track learned and and got adjusted to Star Trek simply fit better with like what we liked about Trek and uh, the way the the screenwriter of motion picture. Fast tracked himself mm. was was didn't fit with as many people's vision of track. I, I, mean, I think it fit with fit Rod, Yeah, I think it fit with Roddenberry's vision is what that yeah. what we got. I, I actually think that all the character stuff in this movie works for me. Like I, I don't have any complaints with 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 Kirk or McCoy or Spock or Decker. I, that to me like that's what I find entertaining when I watch this more than anything else. Um, I, but I also am not watching this in 79 where this is the first time I'm seeing Star Trek. I, 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 like I just said, I watched this after I'd seen all the other TOS uh, movies. Right. I'd seen a bunch of episodes of the show and so this, this was just like another installment for me. Yeah. If, if this was like the first time I saw this in years, I, I think I might have had a, a more negative reaction. Um, See, I would have, for me, I think it would have been more positive because I would have been so starved for Trek that I would have been like, oh, this is Anything is good. <laughs> so. If I might, I've got a I've got a viewer uh, a viewer mail here from uh, from Twitter. We we got a, a tweet here from the amazingly named Kobayashi Saru, <laughs> uh, who says of this and um, and this is, this is in just a second gets to what you were saying, Brian. Um, he says it's frankly the only Trek movie that feels like a motion picture to me. Sure, it's not the most original plot and it plods a little, but it bravely eschewed the the vengeful villain plot that Wrath of Khan would establish for almost every succeeding Trek film, giving it an almost 2001 feel. But then he also added, saw it opening night at 14 and couldn't have been more thrilled. It's a little bit under it's a little bit under the you had to be there category hmm. as we'd only had the original series, the animated series, a handful of books and comics and our imaginations and no VCRs to keep us going. So he says to see the Enterprise so big was priceless. 
So this is interesting. That's somebody who like it really like starved for it, and it really like worked for it. Yeah, um, I think the the just the ending. We we have these Decker and Ilya merging. That is so non Star Wars. The, the, this movie is incredibly daring and gutsy yeah. for its time. And can you imagine releasing it today? What would people say they, about they it? They would never do a movie like this. Well, today. I know they would never do it, but... and it probably wouldn't make money. But what would Star Trek fans say after all of the? The griping <laughs> about Discovery in the J.J. Abrams film if the next Star Trek movie to come out had been the motion picture. <laughs> that would have been just a fascinating thing to see what would happen if you dropped it into yeah. today's climate. The closest uh, we may be see interesting. is yeah. when Tarantino does his super weird thing, if that ever happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, we're going to have to uh, close off on, on that thought, but uh, be sure to let us know what you think about this movie. And um, we're also going to be talking about the Wrath of Khan next week. Um, we're going to be talking talking about the search for Spock and the voyage home before too long. So if you have any uh, questions or comments or anything you might want us to mention in those, be sure to let us know uh, now. And also just going to let everyone know that uh, tomorrow I'm going to be appearing on the Boat Trek YouTube channel talking about the Star Trek Deep Space Nine documentary getting its one night only theatrical release tomorrow, uh, May 13th. Uh, what we left behind. So, if anyone uh, wants to catch our thoughts on on that, I will be appearing with uh, PJ over at Boat Trek tomorrow night. So, be sure to check that out. Um, we will us four will be back uh, Sunday to discuss the next Star Trek movie, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. So, we will uh, sign off for now. And until next time, as always, live, live long, long and, and prosper, prosper y'all. y'all. Thank all of you so much for checking out this installment of Text Trek. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please be sure to like our YouTube videos and subscribe to our channel. Uh, Audio-only version of episodes are available at our website, www.text-trek.com. Uh, please check out our site, especially if you just want an audio-only podcast. Uh, we have that available for you. Y'all can also keep up with us online. You can follow us on Twitter, at TXTrek, or you can uh, check us out on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash text-trek. Please, by all means, let us know what you think by dropping a comment anywhere you see fit. Uh, We definitely want to hear your feedback. Let us know what you liked and what you would like to see more of, what you would like to see differently going forward. If you want to email me directly, uh, go ahead. I can be reached at fatheryactual at text-trek.com. Thank all y'all again. Take care.